0: You've got to believe and trust that you've prepared yourself as best as you can. You have the right program. Believe that you can do it and, and have the confidence. So we talked about this in a podcast the other day. Confidence is an amazing thing. This podcast is brought to
1: you by Trivelo Coaching, where we help triathletes and cyclists like you train smarter to race faster. I'm your host, Jordan Donnelly, and on my left is former Australian Ironman champion and head coach of traveller Coaching, Jared Donnelly. In this episode, we are continuing our series on preparing for an event properly. And today's focus is on the marathon. And dad, there's nothing we love more than seeing our beloved sport of running, Grow, and I've had more and more friends reaching out over the last couple of years who have entered a half or full marathon and are looking for guidance. And since the pandemic, it seems more and more people have taken up running. Uh, So today, we're taking you through how to tackle the monster that is the marathon, how to train properly for it, how to get through the actual race, how to how to stay uninjured, and much, much more. So, Dad, welcome back to another episode.
0: Thanks, Jordan. Yeah, one thing the pandemic did do was uh, got people thinking about what things they could do. Um, when they had all this time where they weren't going to work, commuting or um, working from home or whatever. Um, so, so yeah, I think there was a bit of a running boom um, happened due to COVID, which uh, if, if you can always find a positive out of a negative, well, that was one.
1: Totally agree. So before we get into the topic, our normal starting segment of the podcast, what are you grateful for this week?
0: Yep. I um, had a bit of a think about this one and I really think um, – it, it's a little bit of a weird one as as normal out of left field. Um, I've really come to realize that um, especially over the conversations I've had in the last month, um, oh, some of them on the podcast actually, um, about how important the, the network of support that you as a human being should have um, and how vital it is to your well-being. Um, and I'm grateful for for the ability for me to have, um, friends and, um, and, you know, people in our immediate family that I can bounce things off, um, who can just be there to listen, um, mainly probably not giving advice, but, um, giving me perspective maybe. Um, and I think, I think you have to be willing to be, um, open and honest about your feelings and you'll get, the appropriate responses and I think the support network is vital to, to our everyday well-being and, uh, and our continued growth as human beings and I think if you need to think about that yourself and who is that person and whether it's your coach and I'm happy to be that person um, or whether it's just uh, someone that is your best friend or you, you just really need to to make sure that that you're not keeping things in and and I'm grateful that I've got that many people that i can get that from and and i'm really reaching out to everybody else to to make that something that uh is important in in your life and uh, i think it'll make a world of difference to making you feel better about um a situation that you might find yourself in that's uncomfortable or you're not happy with or you want some perspective on so yeah that's my gratitude
1: That's unreal, Um, and I want to talk about that a little bit more. And it kind of ties in with my own gratitude, where I have just finished the last few conversations we've had on the podcast. Uh, Just so grateful that we've we've gotten to have them, and uh, some of our guests have just been um, overwhelmingly inspiring, uh, thought provoking. Some of the things that some of our guests have said have been so profound, uh, and I'm just so grateful that we get to have these conversations. We we do say this a lot, but. Uh, because of the podcast, we've been able to access just some some really cool people and cool conversations, uh, and it's yeah the interviews we'd ha- we've had have just been quite special, especially uh, some some of the ones over the last month, and have really changed the way I've looked at training, uh, training balance with life, uh, life in general. Um, you know, we had Kel O'Brien just on, and he's a young twenty four year old who speaks like a seventy um, year old, and uh, just his perspective was just so awesome to hear and so refreshing and really grateful for the vulnerability that people have to come on our show and and we don't know these people you know we we meet them we have a conversation before the podcast uh we get to know each other a little bit and then they're so willing to um, share their stories uh, on our platform uh with an audience so uh, i'm just super grateful for that
0: i couldn't agree more and i just want to add one more thing i I just think um i've noticed my generation growing up it wasn't it wasn't a thing to to say how you felt it just it it was almost uh, showing your weakness and i'm i'm just so impressed with the next generation's ability to be willing to just talk about their feelings and and that that's quite foreign to our generation and uh, i just find it so refreshing and and you're right I've I've been really highlighted from our podcasting with Jimmy Wheel and with Kel O'Brien with Lachlan Morton, just guys who are incredible to talk to because they're willing to be vulnerable and talk about how good and bad they're feeling um, and being honest and open. And I, I just think I think it's just helpful uh, for your everyday um, well being.
1: We haven't actually – we've spoken about this a little bit because we do – our conversations just in general, uh, we do talk about gratitude and, and these kind of things off air, not just on air. Um, but uh, my my memory growing up, and I don't know if this is just because we're, we were <laughs> kids and you were the parent, um, but our level of conversation has definitely shifted from when you're a kid and, and you're the dad and you set the rules to um, what it is now. But do you think that's a product of the whole – kind of world changing and do you notice that across all generations or do you think it's just because this is what the younger generation kind of does what are your thoughts on that
0: um that's a good question uh i i think as a parent you want to give your children boundaries so it's harder to be um as open to each other um and I, I think I struggled with that a bit as a parent, um, being too harsh, and but wanting to make sure that you knew where the boundaries were. Um, and I, I laughed a lot, your mum and I laughed a lot at how the boundaries were getting pushed and how we were being challenged um, by you guys. And and I, I definitely learnt that... If I could be vulnerable to you, you responded in a better way. And, and I would always say to you, as an example, um, we were going. I was taking you to a party and I would say to you, and I did this with your older brother, Lane, to start with, I'd say, you know, tonight there's going to be alcohol, it's going to be, you know, having a fun time, I hope you have a fun time. You can do what I did and, and drink too much and make a fool of yourself or you can just drink enough and enjoy yourself and have a good time. You choose which one you want. Um, and i was just trying to give you perspective because i'd made those mistakes myself and regretted being you know acting silly and under the influence of alcohol when i shouldn't have been doing things that were really i regretted um you know they weren't major catastrophes but you know stupid things and and i rather than telling you not to drink as a as a dictatorship i wanted to reason with you as to the experiences I'd had to make you think about the choices you were going to make and the consequences. That worked so much better than when I first started with Liam was, I don't want you to drink. Um, and I think I learned that um, changing my ways of communication, um, you, you all responded so much better.
1: That's an interesting uh, take and I think you've used the words, um, you know, different generation and um, you're impressed with the generation of of young athletes and you see it in the footy world as well. You know, there's a lot of footy podcasts out now where a lot of AFL players are coming on and... and talking with vulnerability which you wouldn't see from footy players in the i guess 80s or 90s and that's a really good point i didn't want to dive into that too much it's not a family therapy session but i was definitely very very interested uh moving on to our next segment uh and in terms of what has caught our attention in the world of triathlon cycling or running dad what's caught your eye
0: well there's a lot to catch the eye at the moment george it's uh it is the i don't know maybe there's there's three or four peak periods during a year in sport and and we happen to be focusing on cycling at the moment. Um, you know, we had the World Cross-Country Championships recently and, um, you know, there's there's just so much stuff happening. Um, you know, when it's an Olympic year or is a Commonwealth Games year, you know, when the Tour de France is on, when the Giro's on, the Welter and the World Championships of running and there's just so much happening. But right now we are in the preparation for um, the, the big season, the summer season in Europe, which is the the Giro, the Tour de France, and the and the Welter and the World Road Championships. So they're are the four kind of key things. It's not an Olympic year, so you know as we've talked about in the last couple of weeks, uh, the the cl- spring classics, and um, so we've got two groups of people training for the spring classics, and the other group are training for the, the Giro. So so we've got the stage races happening, such as the Torino Adriatica, the um. Paris Nice, and now the Volta Catalunya is in Spain, which is an epic race. I, I just love this race. They couldn't it's make it any just, harder if they tried.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's basically just seven days of climbing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, actually, stage I think to,
1: last night's stage was a sprint stage,
0: but stage four was it last night? <laughs> mm, so stage yep. four, and it was a sprint stage, which Calvin Grove won, which is good for the Aussies and in New Zealand. They got um, third, so first and third. Um, and that's about, Caden, the only, Caden Grove, yep. that's about the only chance they've got of uh, getting a sprint. So yeah. um, so what I want to say about what's caught my attention on the Volta is the Remco Roglic challenge. Uh, Remco, Evan Nepal, and um, Roglic, uh, he's in he's in the leaders jersey. It's halfway through. So by the time this podcast comes out, it'll be all done and we'll be able to see... Who, who was winning and who was losing. Um, interestingly, uh, Remco won stage uh, three. Three, yeah. And he threw his arms up in the air and um, it was a well-deserved victory because stage two, he got rolled on the line by uh, Roglic and the other guy, I've forgotten his name. And same as
1: stage one. <laughs> yes. Roglic- and- anyway,
0: it turns out that... Um, he had a two-second gap on Roglic uh, at, the, at the end of that mountain stage, but he sat up with his hands in the air. Had he kept driving it through to the finish line, he would have been in the leader's jersey. jersey. And yep. I thought, the thought crossed my mind was maybe he's not worried about winning this tour, but I doubt that very much. Mm. I think he would be wanting to win every race he goes into. Of course, he won the stage. Um but it just, you know, even the pros, I think he, I think he made a mistake. I think he needed yeah. to think about the overall race and not just the here and now um, and drive it to the line. He only needed one more second because guess what? They're on the same time and because Roglic… Um, has He's
1: won two stages oh, finished better yeah, than him in. He's yeah. got
0: more, more finishing um, places ahead of him, gets the jersey. Um, so, yeah, you know, just minor stuff like that. Um, I think if he had his time again, he would drive it to the line, then put his hand up. And
1: yeah, I still can't figure out Remco's personality because he just is just an animal, and you can just tell that he he doesn't want anything else but to win. And when Roglic beat him in stage one, he was filthy. He was just he was smashing his bike, slamming his hands on the handlebars, and he was so so. It was almost like an angry celebration when he won stage three. He just sat up and he just went. Kind of yes, like I'm, I'm the best. It's almost like he. It's almost like he feels like he deserves to win, or not even deserves, but he should win. That's the result that should happen. And if anything else other than that happens, he he won't have a bar of it. And I almost feel like that was part of his celebration. Was he knew he'd won it. He didn't. He almost like he forgot about the, the seven stage race and just said, "Yes, I'm the best today." I can't figure out his personality. I love him. He's just an animal of a rider. He's amazing to watch. He could be the greatest writer of all time in the, over the next ten years, um, but can't figure him out.
0: Well, what a battle! I mean, you know, is not even there. Um, yeah. Um, you know, there's so many good riders. Um, got- well,
1: we've spoken. We've spoken a lot about form, and we're going to keep speaking about it all the way to the Giro because these guys are six weeks out. Who's riding well now? Who's going to be riding well in six weeks? Um, because this, this. Uh, the Volta Catalonia is stacked with every Giro rider. It's as you're saying, Rebco, Roglic, Carapaz, Tom- Chavez, Thomas, Tom- Grant, Thomas, um, Adam Yates, uh, Mikel Lander. Um, there's even more that I'm I'm forgetting. But um, Roman Bardet. Uh, it's absolutely stacked with some of the best climbers, and so it's amazing to watch. You know, Carapaz is getting spat out the back. Um, Grant Thomas is absolutely hiding, and he actually just put a tweet out today with a picture of him in the bunch saying, you will not see me out of here for this race. But he did say, "Um, but I've got a longer term vision. Um, So that's him indicating that this isn't his race to be absolutely shining. Uh, But it's fascinating to watch unfold.
0: Yeah. And, uh, you know, we we have talked about form and it is a hard thing to hold. And Remco is in unbelievable form. Or is this just his normal? Um, Because his form can be better by the time the Giro comes. Mm. I'm just unsure because... He's sitting on the front driving it and uh, Roglic is getting a free ride and all the commentators are telling us how, how the tactics are really poor from Remco. Um, but, you know, he's got that ability and he could be using this as a training session to to build his form by sitting on the front. Yeah. And, yeah. and sure, you said earlier, you know, clearly he wants to win. Um, so mm. there's a hard – there's a compromise going on here. I want to win, but I still want to get the training session out of it. Because um, hmm. you could sit in and just snipe the victory, um, which yeah. is, you know, which is absolutely okay. Um, yep. but you, you've got a big goal as well you know, the Volta Catalina is not, not the Giro um, yeah. yep. you know? and so we don't know what, what, what the underlining thing that's going on yeah. with, their, with yeah. their training and preparations but it's really riveting to watch because for yeah. someone to sit on the front and then still sprint and ride away that takes some form to do that um, against <laughs> the best riders in the world
1: yeah, it's, it's awesome because – and that's what makes these races so interesting. One, they're great races. But two, this is awesome for any age group or athlete that we're, that are, is our audience to think about is this is their B race. This is their C race. This is not their A race. So, how do they tackle it? And Remco in that stage three victory probably had what you'd think is the wrong tactics where it was him and Roglic were away. Roglic was – Remco was definitely stronger. Roglic was just hanging on to him uh, and Remco just did basically the entire pool for the last 12 or 15K or whatever it was. And in a race where it's your A race, um, he probably wouldn't do that because he probably needed smarter tactics to conserve himself and not let Roglic get a free ride to the end. Um, but maybe because it's a B race, he's doing exactly what you're saying. He's just doing a 12 or 15K effort like he needs to be able to do in the Giro. Doesn't care if Roglic is on his wheel or not. I mean, again, we don't know because we don't have inside access to their exact tactics, but it's fascinating to watch knowing that this is their B race and it could be a training session for them. But also, it's a professional race and they do want to win. And yeah, it's this, it's this funny balance, isn't
0: it? Yeah, and, and uh, tactics, you know, you've got form plus tactics. Mm. Form is just not the only thing that's going to get you to win. Look at mm. Vinegard and Pogachar. Mm. You know, we could say that Vinegard won because Pogachar employed poor tactics at the Tour de France last year. Um, mm. Both the form form of both riders was at their peak, but mm. the ta- tactics of Vinnegar were substantially. Better on certain stages, and you know, and things that uh, Pogachar did early in stages could have affected him down the track. Which was funnily enough what we said when we were doing our podcast in the middle um, of the tour. We were going, well, I don't know but what he did there was a really good idea. Maybe mm-hmm. it's coming going to come and bite him again later on. And those we couldn't have been you know more exact with that. That was, but but you know. Form is one thing and then your ability to read the race is, is uh, so important. And yeah, it's an it's a intriguing um, uh, period of uh, sport going on at the moment. Yeah,
1: absolutely loving it. What's caught my attention is last year, uh, I said my performance, my standout performance of the year, without a doubt, the number one performance was uh, Sydney McLaughlin in the hurdles at the World Champs, broke the world record, first woman to go under 51 seconds for the 400-meter hurdles. And I just love this event. I, the 400-meter hurdles is just epic. Um her, her performance was so good. I spoke about this last year where the top three women in that race are the greatest three 400-meter women hurdlers of all time. They've all been running the fastest times of all time. It's unfortunate for second and third, which is Jalala Muhammad and Femke Bol, that they're competing against Sydney McLaughlin because without her, they would be running two of the fastest times ever, but she has just dominated. and In this race, she beat them by 10, 12 meters um, uh, a second or just over a second. Um, and just, uh, I, I dominating performance and that you just can't, I can't understate that enough, how these are the three best runners the 400 meter hurdles I've ever had. And she was that far clear of, of Femke and Delilah. Um, But what caught my attention was World Athletics just released a video of her rewatching the race for the first time in, in six months or whatever. Um, And she's reacting to how the race unfolded. And she's commentating on what she was thinking throughout the entire thing. And she talks about how she hits the last hundred and she's starting to stumble and she is so far clear of everyone, but, and she, she runs with such perfect form. She looks like she's gliding, but in her head, she's saying, don't fall, don't fall because she's her legs are that heavy. She feels like she's going to fall over. She said she only just made it over the last two hurdles. She really thought she might hit them. And the last 40 meters, she just thought any step now, she's going to fall over because her legs were so heavy. And she broke the world, world record. One of the most incredible times, it was 50.68. Um, and then she lays on the ground for 10 minutes. And she said, everyone was wondering why I didn't do a lap of honor or something. She said, I couldn't move. I had lactic in every single cell of my body and she said honestly looking back i'm really proud of it uh, but she said it also terrifies me because i just i'm really scared of going through that pain again because that was just the hardest race i've ever done and that was such an eye opener to me that you know that's what you think about these professional athletes so a lot of people looked at her and just said you know she's unbeatable she's just so dominant it's it's easy for her whereas in her head it was the most painful and hard race she's ever done and she's literally scared to give it a go. She hasn't done a, uh, a big A race since then. That was, uh, she's obviously had an off-season, now building up again for this season. But um, to hear her kind of say that was uh, kind of refreshing, to be honest, because uh, we've spoken a lot about on the podcast about anxiety before a race and, and stress before a race. And a lot of that comes from focusing on what kind of outcome you're going to get. But I definitely resonate with what Sydney said in that, Sometimes the nerves come from going, I know how much this is going to hurt <laughs> and that's kind of scary, you know. Um, and so, it's, it's a good thing to be aware of and it's a good thing to work on it yourself and go, all right, I know how it's going to hurt but I'm willing and ready to go up for this battle and you really have to psych yourself up and it's this arousal scale of going… This is going to be a tough day, and whether it's a it's a four hundred meter hurdle event or a marathon, you're going. I'm about to go to war with this event, and uh, yeah, I've got to be ready for this. And no doubt that when she comes to her next A race, she'll be ready for it. But for now, when she's sitting in her in the comfort of a of her lounge room watching this race, it's an un- uncomfortable feeling to think about. But I just thought that was fascinating.
0: Yeah, a really good point. Um, I it made me think of um Cathy Freeman um mm. in two thousand four hundred meter, not the hurdles, but the four hundred meter flat. And obviously, when she finished that race, it was, it was interesting watching her body language. I still remember that it's 23 years ago. Um, I expected her to be over the moon, and she was maybe five or 10 minutes later. Um, but it looked to me like relief was the first um, feeling that she was having, and, and exhaustion, the two things that you've just talked about there. The weight of expectation she had on her mm. would have been incredible, you know, people expecting her to, to do what she did. Um, and I think those people who are the favorites all the time have that and that would be a hard burden to carry, I reckon, because people are expecting you to perform, you know, thinking about, Pogachar and Roglic and those guys as cyclists you know the expectation is they perform if they have a bad day everybody's going what's wrong what happened what's wrong with you mm-hmm. and that's hard to deal with it in itself and you know if you start breaking world records like Sidney McLaughlin has done and over the years as, as runners you know we look at um, um, Ingebrigtsen you know every time he races the expectation is that he wins and and that's not easy um mm. Um, to, you know, And so, therefore, you have to be very careful about um, how much you can cope with and what races you should be doing. And, and at the same time, you don't want to be limited by weight of expectation. Um, so, therefore, I think it comes back to what we've been talking about in a podcast a lot is your love of your sport will override all of that. And if you mm-hmm. just love racing, training, competing, you shouldn't give a shit about expectation. And mm-hmm. if you have a bad day, and I, and there's a few athletes who are good at this, um, and I don't think Roglic is quite good at it because there's some races he's had such crap luck, and some of it's his his poor bike handling skills or whatever, but he's had so many races where he's crashing and chasing, and um, and he still smiles and and doesn't blame anybody, and you know, and his expectation is that he should win all the time, and um, but but he's got a great attitude that oh, I just love doing this and some days I'll win and some days I won't. Sargon was brilliant at this, absolutely brilliant at it. Now, anybody who's won three back-to-back world t- titles as a cyclist, you've got to have a pretty good personality, um, um, good mindset and and he just loved riding his bike. And so I think I think the, one of the things I'm learning over my journey in interviewing people and watching sport Rather than being at the top end of it, now is is how the love of the whatever you're doing is almost the winning formula. You can you can have a great program and and that you know obviously that's going to contribute enormously to 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 how you perform and your form of the day. But but your actual uh, mindset about I don't care what happens today. I just love what I'm doing. I'm so grateful that I'm a part of this. And um, I think I just think that's. That's the thing that'll get you further. than and so that example you just gave, then um, you realise how hard the actual event is when you hear someone say that. But when you look at it, it looks like they're doing it so fluently, mm. so easily, mm. and and, mm. and that's what the mark of a good a good uh, athlete is that they make it look easy. You, you know, you, you look at Djokovic serve or any sport you're looking at, you just see them do it so fluently, you know, effortlessly. Um Britson when he's just attacks you know, he's hurting. Everybody forgets that. It's hard. Um Pogachar attacks the group on the last climb, it looks like, oh, he could do that. But you go on a climb and, and try and do that with your mates. Um, you know, it takes all of your mind and, and physical attributes to to push the pedals for 10 seconds harder you know so so yeah it's it's a great example of what's caught your attention but there's a lot to learn from from the mindset mm. for sure
1: mm. totally agree let's get into the uh, topic that everyone wants to hear for this episode and that's how to prepare for a marathon properly and i want you dad to, to start off by describing just what the marathon event is and and what what makes up the marathon and what makes it
0: so tough the history of marathons ironic obviously because you know the the true meaning of the marathon was um, the Greek runner sending a message, which happened to be 26 miles. His message had to be sent. Um, And so that was how the marathon started. Um, So I think the irony of that is the pressure of that message to get to the finish or get his message delivered as fast as he could. And that's kind of what a marathon is. You're trying to get from start to finish as fast as you can, but, because it's got such endurance in it, um, it's hard to – you just want to give your best right from the start, but you, unless you pace it, it's you're going to be destroyed. You're not going to get the outcome you want. You're going to be slower than you want. So so the marathon is, a, is the most unique event where pacing is key, and if you, you fuck that up, you, the whole race is, is destroyed, and it's absolute suicide to do anything other than that. And we've said many times, the shorter the event, the less – the less the hardship or the pain you're going to endure, the longer the event. You muck it up, and that pain and hardship you're going to endure is ingrained in your brain because you're out there enduring that pain that you've mucked yeah. up. Um, and the way you- that my description is you 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 have to respect this more than anything that you ever do, and. And, you know, whether it was 50K or 41 or 47 wouldn't matter. It's it's just that it is 42.2 um, and and it is, a, it is a distance and a time that, you know, we've got obviously we've got someone doing it in two hours and we've got the majority of people doing it in three hours 30. Um, so we've got a huge range of time spent out there. And all the guys who do it in two hours, two hours 10, two hours 20, when, whenever you ask them, they go, I don't know if I could run for three hours 30. Um, i take my hat off to the person who's doing that so so that part kind of up to to five up to five hours plus yeah and that kind of puts it in perspective doesn't it the marathon is just one of those unique events that is is so tough and you can get it wrong so easily and and yet to get it right just takes some really simple good planning and preparation
1: so before we dive into what specifically you need to do what is your experience personally of the marathon being able to get your time down to 231 or 232 for a pb uh, what was your experience training and racing and getting through um, the mental toughness that it requires
0: i don't know if i've ever told you this story but i'm going to tell it on air now and, and i'm not proud of this one but but i was a reasonably good runner Growing up um, as a middle distance runner and uh, and I kind of liked the endurance sport but I still loved as a junior running 800 and 1500 meters um, but the marathon always attracted me and um, I couldn't wait to do it um, but my dad always said you need to be a lot older and a lot more mature to be able to withstand the, the load that marathon requires. Um, and. And I'm so happy that that was the advice I got. Um, by the time I got to run a marathon, um, I'd run so many 10Ks, 5Ks, half marathons, um, and not really done the correct marathon training. Um, but I was so fit for half marathon. I just presumed wrongly that it would transfer across the marathon. And um, a couple of things on the day that went against me, which really didn't help. But I think I was on track to run a reasonably good first. I, I think I did um seven or eight marathons in a triathlon and I did after my triathlon career was over I decided to have a crack at marathon running properly and, and so I, I had a three-year plan to try and run around 230s if I could run sub 230 that would be my goal um anyway, on that journey um i'd done uh, i think a preparation run a half marathon and i remember uh we were at nana swimming pool the race had finished there and i was with, with a few mates and we'd all done the half marathon together and you know i think i ran a 112 and and i was on track for uh you know i just wanted to run my first run it's 248 i wanted to run four minute k pace that was my plan and it was my first marathon so i didn't want to you know i had two years to Two, two or three years to get down to where I wanted to and I had a really good uh, idea of what I was capable of doing um, and saying to the guys in the pool, if I can't r- run under three hours with that half marathon I've just done, I'm giving up running and, <laughs> and they, all, oh, they all laughed. I thought, yeah, yeah, of course you will. You know, you just run a 112, that equates to basically a 244 or 245. Um Anyway, I was on track for four-minute K pace and uh, the, the, the event I chose was the Frankston to Melbourne um, local race here in Victoria and unfortunately some days you have a northerly so it's a headwind the whole 42.2k um, <laughs> it's one direction so uh, brutal <laughs> from point a to point b is not out and yeah. back so it's very <laughs> annoying if you've got a headwind and great if you get a t- typical melbourne forecast which is a southwesterly which is basically a tailwind the whole way but this time yeah. here it is it's a headwind northerly and so tactical running in the pack was really important to try and hide and uh, getting a, a, a draft etc i'm taking too long with this sorry but um but anyway i got to uh i think it was 36k and i had uh, a group of my mates who weren't runners and they had set up uh, a card table and eskies and they were just watching the race uh, at elwood just near lunar park for those who, who, of you who know it and they had an esky with ice and their beers and stuff and um and they were they saw me coming and they were jumping up and down. It was it was actually pretty inspiring coming up to them and um, it was really hot that day. And um, as I came up to them, I was totally on target. I only had 6K to go and um, I should have run that in 24 minutes and I'd, I would achieve my 248. I was probably at 247 pace. And um, they picked up their ice bucket and chucked it over the top of my head and drenched me with cold iced water. And in the next two kilometers, I had full body cramp um, to a a point where I couldn't actually move and I was stationary. And and I did everything I could to keep walking. Um, And it wasn't my poor pacing. It wasn't my nutrition. I probably hadn't done quite enough long endurance runs, but I was pretty well on target for what I wanted to do but just the change in my body temperature from going from a really warm body temperature to totally immersed in ice um, was too much of a shock and I got cramp and as you know we get cramp in our family at the drop of a hat (laughs) so any changes in body temperature are going to do that Um, plus when you've done already you know two hours 30 of running. And it took all of my mental resilience to get to the finish line. I'm not joking. I basically took, from that point, I think it was another 38 minutes to get to the finish line. I could see the clock 2 hours 58, two hours 59, and I still wasn't within 100 meters, and it went three hours. And I finished in three hours and 15 seconds. And that sentence I said at Ngunnawating Pool about, If I can't break three hours for the marathon, haunted you came back to, and you know, that's kind of what what a marathon, you know, program you are going to have good, bad, and indifferent results on on your preparation. And my experience was that that was an unbelievably good thing to happen because it gave me respect for the event and. Um, I thought about my training. I thought about the ice getting thrown on me, um, my my strategy, my execution—all those things come into doubt, and and I had to work through them all. And clearly, looking back, I decided that it was the change of temperature in my body that caused me that problem, and I was doing a lot of other things quite well. Um, And then my next marathon, I did. um, I I was, you know, no problems with sub two forty. And then the next time I did it. um, yeah, the program went well and I ended up doing the low 230s, which is, which is what I wanted to do. So, so I wanted to tell that story because it is a journey and it takes layer upon layer of experiences to get the right outcome. And as we said, those, those preparation years were my B races, my C races, my, for the big day. And um, of course, the, I did the same event, um, uh, Frankston to Melbourne, all three years. Um, and all three years we had a headwind uh, and the course doesn't do that anymore it doesn't go from Frankston to Melbourne it starts, mm-hmm. in, it starts and finishes basically at the MCG which mm-hmm. is a much more pleasant way to do it and it sort of snakes its way around uh, the suburbs of Melbourne so it's got lots of headwind, tailwind, crosswind um, mm-hmm. so it's a different type of race now so looking back, you know, that time I did into a headwind it was probably like a 226 or 227 um, but I, I just got over 230 but I was so satisfied with Everything that went went along with the journey, and it was a great feeling to you know well, I wasn't I was I don't know sixteenth in the race or twentieth in the round I don't know where we I was some in the top twenty somewhere, um, but the standard of that race is not like an international race. Uh, we might have mm-hmm. one or two good runners. I think um, Bill Shorten's come and done it two ten or two twelve, and a lot of local good runners have done two eights and two tens and two twelves. But it's not two fours, two twos type of mm-hmm. runner. Um, so you know. The position was irrelevant to me. It was all about uh, the performance, and and yeah, you know, I've had I've had really good experience at at having a crack at that, and really enjoyed that period um, away from triathlon. But it certainly taught me a lot about um, uh, making sure that you do the right uh, preparation over the right time um, to get yourself into the position you want to be in.
1: And I guess that really, that's, that entire story leads into the first principle of, of a marathon training plan and that is your goal for the race depicts your training plan because if you're a runner like yourself, you might have set a, a one to three-year plan of doing multiple marathons to get your time down because you have, you have a lot to learn whereas some people Want to tick it off as a bucket list item, so they're only doing one. And if they make mistakes in on that one, it's bad. Like that's the one they want to do. So talk us through that. This first principle of when someone says, "Oh, I'm doing a marathon. How do I prepare?" And the first question you ask is, "Well, what's the goal for the marathon?"
0: Yeah, and the second question I use is, "How long have you been doing it? Um, what's your history?" Um, and 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 you know, then then I can say, "Well, this goal that you've uh, selected, once I understand your ability and your history of running." Uh, I can say that goal's spot on for you, or that goal is nowhere near your ability. Um, you've got no chance. Um, you need you got no chance for that date. You need more time. Um, so I'll never say you've got no chance. Full stop. Mm-hmm. I would always say you've got no chance for that particular date. It's too soon. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't have enough time for that. Um, you need to you need to rethink your your goal uh, race day mm-hmm. to another mm-hmm. to another date. Um, mm-hmm. And give yourself more opportunity. So, so I think that's that's the key. Is you know y- your training plan will only be able to help you for your current form. Um, and if your current form is six months of running, then that's got limited um, ability because your aerobic capacity takes years.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: and if you if you want to improve that significantly, um, then you just need to give yourself the right time. Um, yeah. So I think that's the key thing. Um, yeah. So you're right. Uh, your actual race goal in terms of how close it is and the time you want to do is is totally related to your history as a runner and the aerobic fitness that you bring to the table right now.
1: That is the typical traveller conservative answer, which we um, – Love, But also, what is what gives uh, an amateur runner or a new runner that wants to do a marathon or a new-ish runner, uh, wants to do a marathon, a lot of hope is the principle of diminishing returns, meaning you will get the greatest improvement um, at that when you're newer to the sport. And so, a lot of runners will find that if they could do a six-month running program, you know, 24 weeks long with proper progression – not too much overload to the point where their, their body's breaking down. They will feel like a different person at the end of the 24 weeks. You will feel so much fitter than you've ever felt in your life. Uh, and that's really exciting. That's a really cool part of, of a proper training plan if you give yourself enough time.
0: Yep, and we've got to remember that as you said earlier, when the, you pose the question, it could just be a one-off thing. We hope that it's not. My my desire is that once people fall in love, and you've heard this already in this podcast, once you love what you're doing, you I want be I want you to make it your lifelong journey is to keep doing these things. And I don't mean just keep doing the same race. I just mean keep running, or keep riding, or keep triathloning, mm. um, mm. or keep swimming, whatever whatever mm. your your passion is. Just yeah. don't make it a one-goal thing. Um, make mm-hmm. it part of your everyday life, um, yeah. and it, it will help you in all sorts of things in your work life and your family life. We talked about yeah. that, but but certainly, I think that if you're just going to pick one event, uh, one one box-ticking event like a marathon, you know you can do it. Whether you could run 42.2k, whether you had four weeks training or whether you had six months or six years. That's the answer. You can get mm. there, mm. but it's the the level of the experience that that is going to either. If you give yourself four weeks to do a marathon, you're going to have a lot of pain in that day. Yep. You know, yep. right from the start. You know, you yep. might get away with five k's being comfortable, but for the next thirty six, you're going to be very uncomfortable. But yep. you will get there. Um, yeah. So, so I want to make that clear. Um, yep. We're just trying to give you the best outcome. Um, with the right structure to enable you to enjoy the thing. Because I think in life, if you do something that's unenjoyable, you're highly unlikely to go back and revisit it.
1: Mm. it's always it's funny because it's just an, always an answer that people don't expect they say oh just give me a training plan like don't talk about all this crap about you know loving the event and, and respecting the event and, and understanding what your goals are like just, just tell me what to do and we're saying well no that's that's just totally the wrong way to go about it and if you've decided to do the marathon these are the things that you have to understand about the event these are the things you have to understand about this challenge that you're about to undertake and I guess I want you to keep going down that path of what are the requirements of the race that you want people to understand
0: Yeah. Well, the first one is you need the time to do the training and I don't mean general, I mean the training session that's key, which is your endurance preparation. So you've got to allow in your weekly schedule that you would possibly be running at some point in that training plan up to close to the time it's going to take you for the event. So if you're going to do five hours for the marathon then you need to be prepared that at some point you're going to be running close to that time. I don't mean the distance, I mean close to that time when you go out for your training run. And that's not what you do in week one. For those who have listened to the program, that's very obvious. For those who have never listened to the program, progressive overload is our key thing, which is start slow and build. And so if you're thinking that five hours is your time that you're aiming for or three hours 30 or two hours 40, then you need to be training at some point towards the, the end of your program at that training time. Um, so so starting off at, you know, an hour and a half might be the longest you've ever run. And by the time if you're a three hour thirty runner, by the time you get to marathon day, you will have run somewhere around three hours, three hours twenty, somewhere in, in that training session. Um, so that is that is the key requirement that that you need to have uh, in your mind before you start the program, and the other sessions are basically just continuing to keep the consistency going in your in your running, so that you're you're building an aerobic capacity to absorb the load. But the key session is the endurance run, um, and everything around that is contributing to recovering from that and then getting ready for it.
1: And how long is too long for that run? Let's say you're predicted to run between four and five hours. Are you realistically asking someone to get to the point where they run for four hours on a Saturday or Sunday as a training it's run? It's a
0: great question because when I'm coaching people to ultra 100Ks um, or further, um, when I say to them that you know if you're going to take 12 hours for that event, we need to be doing some days where we're actually out there for eight hours and I just get silence on the other side of the, <laughs> of the phone. Um and oh yeah. And and you know, that sounds easy to roll off your tongue, but but the the run can be broken up into many ways. We can do a split run where we might do, you know, two or three hour run in the morning and then the afternoon when you've only had really small time of recovery, you might build up to an hour in the afternoon to an hour and a half to two hours. So already you've got a five hour, six hour run. Uh, in one day, and then you know once or twice in that build-up in that six-month period, you might do a day where you do six or seven or eight hours where you're walk-running. Um, you might be in the mountains somewhere where you're on trails where you can't actually run, um, and you're you know climbing up steep slopes where you have to walk. Um, so it's more like a an excursion <laughs> than a training session really, because we're just not running fast. Um, we're just mm. out there for time on our feet. That's going to replicate the event.
1: And uh, I, I do see sometimes, or a lot of the time, programs do depict um, these endurance runs on firstly on um, distance instead of time. And could you explain why that's a mistake?
0: Yeah, because um, if you took the, if you took the marathon as an example, um, when you get to your peak form, you're going to run X pace um, in training. Because we don't want to have such fatigue build up. I mean, remember what happens after the marathon? You are exhausted because you've run at your peak pace for forty-two k, and you've built your form up. You've tapered, and this is a one-off, a one-off event, and it takes you probably a week or two or three to really recover from. So, if we were to say to everybody, we want you to run forty-two k on your long run, or or thirty-six or or thirty. Um, at your race pace, then you would take so long to recover you wouldn't train. So we're just going to get the body used to the time factor first, the time of the event that you're going to take and don't have the intensity as a factor. So remember, we always talk about frequency of training, duration of training and intensity of training. So the frequency is the key. So if you train too hard, then you're going to lose the frequency, which is consistency of lining up each day for a session. So we've got to cut the intensity down um, for our endurance run so that we can back up again week in, week out, so that we can get the right amount of load into our body come to our race day. So the minute you try and run those long runs too hard, you're going to need more time to recover, which means it's going to cut into your frequency, which is the key to all programs. Um, so the minute you drop your frequency of training, which is consistency, which is lining up day after day and, you know, having a day off here or there, a recovery day here, here and there in your program, that's going to get you to race day 10% better than you would be if you had not trained so hard in those endurance runs. We can get the intensity from other areas, but it's, that's not the day we want to do it. But you know, in some of the endurance runs over the six months, we would ask you to do you know your own half marathon at race pace or your own 30K at race pace or your own 36K at race pace as a test. But that's not a week in, week out thing. That's something mm. that happens every four to six weeks um, in your program.
1: And I guess you're not also really has to say that you're not trying to get to the point where you're running, let's say you're going to be a four hour runner you build up to that four-hour mark, you're not going to do that for a month straight. You're not going to build up to that four-hour mark and then do four weeks in a row, four hours. It's probably once you get to that longest distance of what you're going to run for your endurance run, that's probably a one-off. That's once you get there. Is that right?
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. And that for me generally should be six weeks out from your main event. You should be doing your longest time run six weeks out. And then from that lead in, you've basically got five more weeks and one of the weeks is the race. So you've only got four weekends, from six weeks out, you've got the, the six-week out run, four weeks of training, and then the race. So you've got four weeks where you're totally reducing the the duration and then slightly increasing the intensity. Um, so yep. you start to run less distance, and then you start to pick up you know, that six-week race ready period, we call it, where you're starting to replicate the paces for shorter times that you're going to run on race day. And, and, and I think that's the key.
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And that, that immediately leads us to the progression question, which is uh, how long should the program go for and how quick is too quick to progress through your long run? Because the point you just made there is you want to be getting to that goal length of your longest endurance run six weeks out. So, if you work backwards from whatever that goal run is, again, we're using the four-hour example, to where you are now, maybe your longest run ever is an hour, you need to be able to week by week build up from an hour to four hours and finish there six weeks out. So you need to allow enough time for that build. And let's say you, you know, you increase ten or fifteen minutes per week in terms of your long run, which is a general progression. Fifteen minutes is maybe pushing it, depending on the person. Um, you know, that's going to take you eighteen weeks worth potentially uh, of progression um, to get to that point six weeks out. So that's kind of giving you a time frame working backwards of of how, far you should, how fast you should be pro- progressing. Progressing.
0: Yeah. Well- you're almost answering your own question, but but the bottom line is the longer time you give yourself, the more opportunity you have to progress slower, um, and the rushed progression risks injury. Um, and if you want to take shortcuts, you know what's going to happen. Your risk factor goes up exponentially. You you are going to, you know, run the gauntlet of possibly overtraining, overstraining, and then what happens? Frequency which is consistency disappears and you're worse off come race day. Mm. Um so yeah so yes, the answer, the simple answer is give yourself more time than you think. Um it's never too late. As I said earlier, you know, six weeks out for that for that particular style of preparation. If you've only given yourself twelve weeks, well, you know, that doesn't give you much time, but you can still do it. Uh, and you yeah. know, I'm not going to sit here and say, well that's not that's not achievable. You yeah. know you can run a marathon in you know if you had to with two weeks training you know mm. but that's not what we're talking about here we're being this sensible
1: this is just what's ideal and you could almost look at what's ideal and then what's what you actually have now because you might go oh crap i signed up for this marathon 16 weeks away and now they're telling me i need minimum 24 weeks well now you have to decide okay where can i try and meet in the middle here where can i look for ideal but realize i don't have enough time so try and uh, find find that medium patch. And one point I would like to make is I have seen a lot of programs where they do progress people quite quickly in terms of total volume per week. And so you have to look at what the amount of K's you're running per week. And people might start at 25 K's, then it's quickly 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, up to 90. and I just look at any beginner runner trying to run over 60 kilometers a week consecutively. You know, we we uh, we as uh, we train full time as runners as triathletes, um, and in our coaching group in my own example um stringing together consecutive 60 60 kilometer plus weeks is really tough and my body takes a long time to adjust to that and i've been running for 28 years you know um and so for a beginner runner to expect their body to be able to cope with that uh, is asking a lot so you have to be really aware of that and i don't like seeing a program that progresses that fast and then expects a a novice runner to be able to do 60k this week 70k the week after 80k the week after that because they're trying to get that volume in i just don't think that's um safe
0: well you're that was the next point that i was going to raise is the program going forward is always dependent on what you've done previous and so what you've done previous is you've been a runner for 4 weeks previously or you've been a runner for 40 years or you've been some, somewhere in between 4 years 4 weeks and 40 years so that will determine how quickly you can progress if you've been a runner all your life and you come onto a program like this you would only need probably sometimes the minimum of eight weeks because you've already been doing the volume required and you've got the necessary aerobic fitness That's that would – all you need is some fine-tuning from someone who knows what they're doing and you've got your race-ready period to, to get yourself to the goal that you want to do and that's a classic example – um, of people who who want to join the program, and they're already runners. Um, but the, I, the the person you're isolating there is the the new person, the novice, and and there's not a lot of people in that position who would try to do a marathon straight away. Um, <laughs> yeah. So we're talking about a very minor group of people, and so the majority of athletes out there who are runners, um, you are coming to the table already quite well prepared. Your season has been done, whether it's three years or ten years of running or or a year's worth of running, you're still ahead of the person who's a novice. So, so the novice their their aim should be a five k um, park run. Um, mm. You know that's that's how conservative we are. Um, and yep. then you progress to a ten k and a half marathon. And then if you're still in love with with running, then your big goal is the is the marathon down the track. Um, so you know being sensible and and making these goals around. The bar at the pub is is great to do, but but you know just because the other six guys have said yeah I'm going to do a marathon and it's in six weeks time that that's probably not the right outcome for you if you haven't been running at all, um, and so that's kind of what we're trying to we're trying to d- d- differentiate between all sorts of abilities and levels and uh, historic uh, re- relevance is is the key to the answers that you're asking.
1: And I want to bring it back to frequency now because you spoke about all the sessions around that endurance run and the rest of the week is quite important to get right. And so, we've had many athletes uh, aim for that elusive sub-three-hour mark. So, I want you to give an example of how often they were training, what their frequency was like um, versus some athletes who are somewhere between that three-hour and three-hour-thirty mark um, who maybe didn't have time or uh, weren't as experienced to train as frequently, but they could still get away with three to four sessions a week so talk us through the frequency side
0: yep and don't forget the people in the world who have run under three hours i think is less than five percent of Mm. all marathon runners so we're talking again a really small uh, amount of people and if they can run you know uh, 415 pace i think is what gets you under uh, three hours 412 i think it might be i should know that because um um we had daniel byrne do three hours and thirty seconds, three hours and twenty seconds, and then two hours and fifty-eight, two hours and fifty-eight minutes. Um, um, so I know that four twelve or four thirteen is the pace you need to run for breaking three hours. So so that that group of people, they are probably already running five out of seven days minimum, um, mm-hmm. and that's why, as a as a professional cyclist or a professional runner, you've got this huge. Aerobic base that that enables you to to knock out sixty to one hundred k a week, or as a bike rider, four hundred to six hundred k a week, or twenty to thirty hours, because your body is a, a totally adjusted to that load. Um, so if you're someone who's a three hour thirty runner, you probably still might be in that in that category that you've been able to run consistently um, five days a week and. And someone who's not done any of that and is a four-hour runner, um, they would probably struggle with three to four sessions per week. And therefore, you need to be very clever. And the obvious answer, which is cross-training, so, you know, Mm getting yourself to to do some stuff where if you can possibly swim or, or jump on a bike and do some easy riding um, and it has to be all easy where you're not trashing your legs um, because we're trying to get off our legs. Um, you know, that's why swimming is such a good thing to do. Um, you're still getting some cardio, you're still breathing with your head in the water, um, you're still blood flowing around. You know, what are we trying to do on our recovery days? We're trying to repair the damaged muscles from our running. And the best way to do that is just to get light blood flow. And, you know, we know blood carries oxygen, which repairs working and damaged muscles. So we want to continue that happening. Going for a walk is easily as good a thing to do, Um, as long as you've got some movement um, where there's a little bit of blood flow above sitting still. Um, So it's important that uh, five five sessions is kind of the optimum, I think, over the journey from everybody that I've had go through the program and my own running. Um, and even then, I didn't run seven days a week. I was doing other sessions um, and and making sure that I, I just, you know, I wasn't running myself into the ground by just running seven days a week, you know, six months at a time and having a day off here and there. Um, from running. It, it, you know, the more recovery you can do, and you know this yourself, you are a better athlete when you're fresher. Um, but you still need to get your body used to load. And that's what training is preparing you for the load that's going to happen on race day. Um, and, you know, there's a fine line between doing way too much and doing enough to get you to the result you want. Um, and each person is going to react differently. And that's the hard part. Um, from a coaching point of view, because one program doesn't fit everybody. You know, the, the five sessions that I give you, um, I might have to adjust the intensity of those. The five sessions are clear, you know, some tempo, some some recovery, some endurance, some strength, and some race-like pace. They're basically <laughs> the five sessions. But, but the you know, the intensity of all of those sessions might need to be adjusted if you're not coping.
1: Can you give us uh, an example snapshot of a training week of potentially uh, just a quick example of you know what they those sessions actually mean you know what is a tempo a race like session uh, um, interval session uh, recovery a steady state session uh, what do they all specifically mean and um, how do they fit into a week
0: Yeah so let's just let's just concentrate on marathon training for this um so so our endurance run for a start we've we've probably talked about that a lot um, yep, that. So it's yep. all the strength work in the hills, um, running to time, um, and making sure that you're not running too hard, and you're keeping yourself as much as you can in zone two, uh, where where the duration is the key component of the day, um, and strength is the second thing, and um, and keeping your heart rate down um, so that you know you're not trashed, so you can't front up. Two days later for your next run, if it's a Sunday. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So there is a, a recovery run that which is helpful to do if you if you're a person who's running Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday or Saturday, and there's your five days. Um, so it depends on how your schedule is for the week, um, and that determines where we put the recovery. So if if you're only able to do five runs and they're Saturday, Sunday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, straight away our recovery days or our cross training days are Monday, Friday. Um, so, what are we doing in those days? We're just doing for a light spin, or a walk, or a swim. Um, so you've got you've got the understanding that zone one—that's all you have to worry about. Um, so, therefore, if that's going to be our schedule, and this is just a hypothetical example, um, so if we're going to run Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I'm unhappy with that because it's not giving you much recovery. So the Wednesday has to be your easy easy day. So if you're going to run with some sort of change in pace. F- Remember, remember, marathon pace. If you're running, we know that if you're a three hour runner, you're going to run four hours twelve. If you're two forty eight, you're going to run four hours. If you're a three hour thirty, you're going to run four fifty, some pace, something like that. You know, etc. etc. Yep. So, so knowing those paces is is what we're going to determine our intensity around, uh, working backwards from your marathon actual goal pace. Um, so. So our Tuesday and our Thursday, we would be trying to do something where we're running um, slightly better than our marathon pace um, because we've already got a day endurance where we're running way slower than our marathon pace. And so, you know, we, we always talk about specificity, don't we? Well, why would you do a training program where you never run at your marathon pace? You need to have that somewhere. So... So we would, do, we would try to do recovery runs where we're actually running slower. We would try to do some sort of zone two sub-threshold, which is just below your marathon pace, or something about threshold going into VO2, which is just above. So we're getting the body used to everything that could happen on the day. Um, and obviously we're doing it for reasons because sometimes we want to practice Um, more threshold running because that's where I'm weak, more strength running. That's where I've got no abilities to sustain. Um, When I get tired, you know, the stronger you are, you can hold the pace when you are strong at the back end of a, of a, of a marathon, because you've got the strength from the hills. Um, and if you don't do any of that sort of stuff, you find that you fade every time and that could be the exact reason why you fade because you just don't have the strength and endurance to hold that pace. So we need to do sessions similar to that. So that's why we would throw in hill repeats. We would have some tempo runs which are kind of that sub-threshold where it's between 75 and 90% of your, your threshold pace and, and those sort of sessions are really good because they're – they're going to um, give you the, the, the pace that you're going to feel similar to on race day. And I'm not talking about um, the training session as relationship to your marathon pace. I'm talking about your threshold pace here. So so the sub-threshold is your threshold pace for your best 10K, your best one hour. Um, mm-hmm. So, So just understand the difference there. Um, we've we've got marathon our marathon pace, pace is pace
1: going to be a, a percentage of that threshold yes
0: that's right so we've got our marathon pace which is also a percentage of our threshold um, it might be you know seventy five percent of your threshold pace on the day um, of your best one hour. Um, so, so we're going to do some sessions that are just under that threshold pace, which is still above your marathon pace, um, and we're going to do some sessions that are over your threshold pace, which is way above your marathon pace, but we're also going to do some sessions that are bang on your marathon pace so that your body gets a, a, a totally attuned and adjusted to what it feels like to run at, the examples I okay, gave, 4.50 or 4-minute or four K pace or, or 4.12. Um, And, you know, in some of those, we do a lot of uh, hill repeats where um, I'm asking them to run not at a pace up a hill. I'm asking them to run at a feel, um, which might be I'm asking you to run at your five-minute K pace. What does that feel like when you're running on the flat? And it might be your five-minute K pace might be 4.30. Um, I don't want you to run up the hill at 4.30 because that's not capable because you're running up a hill. So you need to have the same feeling as as a four minute thirty pace. So that might be five minute ten pace up the hill, but it feels like four thirty five k pace. And yep. so get that right, and then um, then watch your strength and endurance just go through the roof. Um, so so we've got a, a variation of uh, some some running on the flat where we're running bang on uh, marathon pace. We've got some hill repeats where we're running at faster than marathon pace, but but you know, not sprinting well, it feels
1: like your five k pace, as you said. Yeah,
0: that's right. And and then we would try to do some sub threshold stuff, which is, which is just under um under your uh, threshold. So you would be running um, somewhere between your ten k and your half marathon pace in there. Um, and that is that is harder than what you what you're going to experience on race day. But as as we always know, when even in a, as an example in a warm up. Uh, if you're going to do a 20-minute time trial on a bike or a a 10K run or a 5K run, if you warm up a little bit harder than the actual race and the warm-up's quite short um, where you're doing some three by 10-second sprints with 90-second rest, those sprints are there so that when you start the run, the 5k run or the 10k run, the pace seems relatively easy compared to what you just did in those 10 second or 15 second efforts. And, and I, you know, even when you were a junior, I made you do two or three 200 stride outs, 200 meter stride outs. Yeah. And then come the start of the race, you were so warmed up that whatever the, the intensity of the race was, you, you were. Ready to do it, and that—that's kind of the same analogy we're trying to replicate here. Is to try to get you to to do some sort of uh, training which is well above the expectation on race day, so that it feels quite comfortable on race day until thirty yep. k or thirty-five k or forty-one k, hopefully.
1: That's a great snapshot of the actual training and I'm conscious of time, but we do want to finish by talking about the actual race itself. And you've spoken a lot about at the start about the, um, how much the race can defeat you, uh, how prepared you have to be mentally and physically. We're talking about the requirements so far in training so that you can actually get through the race. And like you said, get to that 30 K mark, get to that 35 K mark and be able to have the strength to keep going. That's what all these sessions are designed to do. So, Take us through to finish off. What do we need to know about the actual race itself? What are you, what are you hammering home to athletes? What are you reminding them of? How do they approach the race and execute and have the best day possible?
0: Don't have your mates with a bucket of ice. That would be one. <laughs> um, but certainly, um, there's so much to say here. It's it's the preparation, the taper, it's the nutrition during that week, the night before, the the, the morning of getting there in the time, being relaxed, being calm, having a race plan, and then there's a race. So the race will pan out this way every single time. There'll be people on the start line who run too fast, who throw you off mentally, and I've already told this story. Um, that Melbourne to Frankston, I think at one point there might have been a Steve Monagetti equivalent on the start line who is capable of running a, a 206 or whatever and literally five or 600 people kept pace with him in the first two or three K. Um, the only one person who could hold that pace was that guy. The other 600 people were wrong. They were going to run something slower and some of them were going to run four hours, yet they ran <laughs> 303 pace like for the it. first two or three K. So, so that is that is not what to do. You need to go in with a clear plan. And and I can still I can go and grab my book, which is just right over there in the cupboard, and it'll show me that I was aiming to run 18 minutes 30 per 5k. And and that's all I had to, had to worry about. Um, you know, what were my five K splits? And in order to get those five K splits, what did I need to run per K? And the big test I had was every 5k, look down. 18 something and I'm bang on target so you need to follow that race plan from start to finish Um, there will be marathon courses where that's harder to do because there's headwind there's hills there's downhills there's sections that are predominantly uphill so you've got to adapt or adjust your plan according to the course so it's easy to say that's your plan on a dead flat course with no wind that's an easy thing but not a lot of the races are like that so you actually need to have that scheduled into your race plan. Um, so, so in order to make the race a successful one, that is the key, is your race plan and then how can you execute it. If you make mistakes in that execution, then that's going to be the problem. But if you're fit enough to, to come out of that mistake, you can still save the day. But if you don't realize you've made the mistake till it's too late, then the race is going to have the outcome that you don't want. So in order to get to the finish line with the result you want, the race plan and the execution are all what it's about. And you need to be in the cone of silence and have no one around you um, except for your body and mind attuned to how am I feeling? Is my pace right? Um, How's my heart rate? Um, am I feeling comfortable? Is this getting too hard? You're asking yourself these questions every single 20, 30 seconds. Um, um, is there someone I can run with who's running the same pace as me? Can I drop in behind them and get a, a bit of a rest? And then finally, making sure your nutrition um, is is on song and you've practiced that in training and that will give you the outcome that you want. So have a a correct race plan that you've talked about with your coach um, that you know is actually real and you you have evidence that you can do those numbers, that pace, and then going out and actually doing it and not getting sucked into people around you running a, a pace that you think you can sustain because you are so fit and tapered that the first 20K should feel the easiest 20k you've run for a long time, and you should be saying to yourself, "I can run faster it's than this. Too slow. Yeah, um, this is way too slow. I can do better than this. Maybe my plan was wrong. Well, that's not going to be the case in 12k or in 15k time. That's when that's when you need to stand up and be counted and be grateful that you've had a plan and you've stuck to it, because yeah. no, like unlike any other endurance event in in, and I say this a lot, um, patience is the key." Um, and, and to stick with your plan. And if you're patient, you will do that. If you're impatient, you'll get ahead of yourself and, you know, risk risk the, the consequences of not getting the result you want. But if you want to go for it and that's what we're trying to do, the time is with 7K to go, you know, at 35K, you yeah, think you've got this, you then prove yeah. it. That's the time yeah. to do it, not at 21K. Yep.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That is an absolutely brilliant snapshot of a race plan. And a last question I want you to uh, try and answer is, do you remember, you used the the example of Daniel before in his third year in a row, his third attempt at breaking three hours, maybe it was his fourth one, I think, um, where he was 20 seconds off his target each time. Do you remember the last thing you said to him, the last bit of advice you gave to him before the race?
0: That's a really good question. And I think it is, have the confidence in your preparation because you can do this. That is basically what you've got to believe. You've got to believe and trust that you've prepared yourself as best as you can. You have the right program. Believe that you can do it and, and have the confidence. So, we talked about this in the podcast the other day. Confidence is an amazing thing. So, so you get confidence from some some good results coming into the race, and search for those. Events Go and do some events where you are in the form of your life if you've trained properly. So go and do a 5K run or whatever's in your program to, to really, you know, there's nothing like going and doing, for example, we've got 70.3 at Geelong coming this weekend. A couple of guys have gone out and done some FTP tests and they are flying. They have done PBs. What a confidence booster that is coming into the race. And they're, they're just going, bring it on. They, you know, I can't wait to race because that's the best I've ever done. So go into the race and back yourself in, and trust that you've done the work, and you will be fine if you follow the program, uh, the, the 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 actual race plan.
1: Brilliant! That was a jam-packed episode. Uh, absolutely unbelievable information in there, and that should prepare anyone as well as they can uh, without spending another two hours going to the absolute intricacies. So we hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you've got a marathon coming up, let us know how you go. Let us know how your training's getting on. We hope it helps, and we'll see you in the next episode.